electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. It's the rotation from Fang to, well, Fang. The big tech names falling flat this week while the energy stocks have outperformed. It seems like Diamondback, ticker F-A-N-G. Stick with the new winners. We'll debate that in just a moment. Plus, from coast to coast, we'll show you how retailers, hospitals, and governments are preparing for a vaccine rollout that could get approved in the next 48 hours. And exclusive data on where all cash home buyers are going, how they're doing it, and whether all buyers can do it. It's all ahead this hour. But let's begin with the markets. And let's look at some of the action that we're seeing with stocks down as much as 164 points on the Dow at the low. We're down about 71 right now. That's a quarter percent. Uh, worse for the S&P, down two-thirds of a percent. The Nasdaq down one percent. And all the averages are on pace for their worst week since October. Energy is still the bright spot, the best performing sector this week, and investors are seemingly trading one fang in for another. The tech giants are down, including 3% drops for Facebook and Google this week. Meanwhile, Diamondback Energy, ticker fang, has some bite. It's on pace to finish the week with a 3% gain, and Morgan Stanley just named it a top pick for 2021. So let's talk about the rotation that seems to be underway here. For that, we welcome in Craig Callahan. He is president of Icon Advisors, and Brad McMillan is CIO of Commonwealth Financial Network. Welcome to both of you. Um, Craig, You know, what do you make of tech's underperformance really going back to early September now? Um, does this create an entry point for investors, or do you think this rotation still has a long way to go and that other uh, sectors are much more interesting? It's clear there is a rotation, and we're finding the best values and the potential leadership in the economically sensitive uh, cyclical sectors, industrials, materials, and energy, as you pointed out, also financials. So we think this market can move higher with, with that type of leadership. Are you worried about interest rates, Craig, uh, on the financials front? We don't, we don't see that as, as hurting them that much. So we, we think they can grow earnings. In fact, the analysts are calling for really impressive year-over-year growth in earnings in financials for the next two years. Yeah. And uh, I know people will often debate whether you know, or not interest rates really are the most important thing for them anyhow. Um, certainly, they've performed well anytime we're having a reopening kind of trading session. So, Brad, let me ask you, and I mean, part of this, I, I guess, is predicated on what comes out of Washington. Um, this morning, there's more nervousness about the fate of the stimulus bill. We'll talk more about that later. But does the rotation need the next stimulus bill to keep taking place? No, I don't think it does need the stimulus bill. What we're going to see here is we're going to see the economy slowly transition back to something close to normal over the next six months. So you're going to see all of the companies that thrive in a more normal environment come back. And as 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 he was saying, I mean, that's that we're really talking about the financials, energy as demand comes back. All the all the stimulus is going to do if we get it is limit the damage over the next three months. But after that, we should be back to something approaching normal. Yeah. So that where does that have you on the market, Brad? Because this is starting to become consensus now. Um, you know, have valuations kind of caught up with what everybody thinks about the reopening trade? Actually, the market is a lot 
cheaper if you look at it on 2022 earnings. It's actually at the lower end of what we've seen recently, about 18 times. So there's some upside here. And the question is, how quickly do we get to those earnings? You know, we're saying 2022, but at the same time, analysts have been consistently too pessimistic. So I think there's some more upside. I actually think we have, uh, we're going to see normalization faster than people think because companies are continuing to adapt. And Craig, you also think we're about 12% below fair value. Is that right? Correct. Based on our valuation, we see stocks priced about 12 to 15% below our estimate of fair value. Are they going to catch all the way up, though? I mean, we've talked a lot over the past couple of years about stocks being under prices, you say, relative to where they should be trading. Uh, that doesn't stop them from having you know, sharp pullbacks along the way. And I can't recall if they've ever really closed that gap, have they? Well, there's an old saying that stocks climb a wall of worry, and that's, that's pretty typical right now. There's a lot to worry about, and stocks, we believe, will just keep climbing. Fair enough. Brad, we've talked about those headwinds next year, everything from, you know, if the next stimulus bill doesn't progress to what happens, uh, you know, if the vaccine rollout isn't as smooth as everybody is expecting. Uh, where do you think investors should be placing their bets? I think a lot of the worry is priced in. As you just said, everybody's talking about the things that can go wrong, and they can go wrong. You know, I've said, you know, the vaccine rollout is not guaranteed. The recovery is not guaranteed. But let's think about the upside here. Everybody's talking about fear. What happens if we get the vaccine rollout successfully and people all of a sudden can go shopping? They can travel again. They can spend all the houses they bought. They want to buy new furniture for, and now they feel better, so they're going to do it. I actually think investors should be aware of the risk, but they should be starting to think about the upside, too. You know, right now, fear is the main trade. Maybe we need to start thinking about the greed trade. Hmm. We've been hearing about that already, given some of the euphoria levels lately. Uh, We'll leave it there, guys. Brad McMillan, Craig Callahan, with your thoughts on the market on this Friday. We appreciate it. Uh, As mentioned, we're down about 1% on the NASDAQ. Dow would be down more if it weren't for Disney. We'll have more on that in a moment. In the meantime, let's turn to the latest on the vaccine as we await final word on its approval from the FDA. We have full team coverage of this story today. Meg Terrell with when we could expect the green light for distribution. Frank Holland live at a hospital in Newark as it readies its rollout to frontline workers. And Kate Rogers is out in California with that state's plans for who will get it first. Meg, let's start with you. Hi, Kelly. Well, this timing from the FDA could come at really any time. The New York Times reports even as soon as later this evening. Uh, the FDA, for its part, did put out an unusual statement this morning saying that after the positive advisory committee vote last night, it is working rapidly. It's told the sponsor, which is Pfizer, it'll rapidly work toward finalization and issuance of an emergency use authorization. It says it's also uh, notified the CDC and Operation Warp Speed so they can execute their plans for timely vaccine distribution. Uh, now, that comes after that positive a vote last night uh, from that outside panel of advisors that broke down to 17 in favor, four against, and one abstention. Uh, now, many folks were surprised there was anybody who voted against this, and we've been reaching out to those folks who either voted no or abstained. And we've heard from all of them except for one, uh, and each has essentially said it was a matter of the age that was included in the question perhaps uh, authorizing this for people age 16 and older. Most thought there wasn't enough data to support the clearance in 16 and 17-year-olds. We just got a response from another one of those folks who voted no, uh, Dr. Michael Carrilla, um, who told us that emergency use authorization 
is only applicable for life-threatening conditions. Severe COVID with potential for a high risk of mortality is predominantly found in older populations and those with certain chronic medical conditions. He pointed out that it was not a vote against the vaccine or its intended use under an emergency use authorization. He said he thinks the benefits outweigh risk in certain high-risk groups and the available data support this. Um, so Kelly, if the FDA acts soon, which we expect it will, um, simultaneously the CDC is actually meeting right now with a meeting of outside advisors to discuss the vaccine. It'll meet over the weekend as well um, to officially recommend it. Uh, and then once the FDA gives that green light, within 24 hours, almost 3 million doses will go out and start to ship. Kelly? So we're only waiting for the FDA's green light, Meg. We're not also waiting for the CDC? The CDC uh, doesn't have to give the green light in order for these vaccines to start being used, but it will essentially do it simultaneously as uh, perhaps the distribution is happening uh, after the FDA's green light. Yep. And I mean, it's not like you want them to recommend against it, but uh, still just trying to figure out the timing of all of this. Uh, it's the FDA to watch in particular. Meg, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Or Meg Terrell, let's get to Frank Holland now with more on what happens at hospitals once the vaccine arrives. Frank. Hey, Kelly, I'm here at University Hospital in Newark, New Jersey. I'm standing right in the middle of what they call the vaccine assembly line. Yes, the vaccines will be given right here in these chairs. This hospital is expecting to be among the first in the nation to give some of the first doses of, COVID, of, of uh, Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine. We're going to show you how the assembly line works. First, patients, they come over here to registration. They give their name and other information. Then they just take a few steps over to here. They sit in one of these chairs and then they're given a quick health check. They want to make sure that people getting this vaccine are healthy. After that, they're actually given the vaccine while they're sitting right here. And then after that, they're monitored by a nurse for about 15 minutes just to make sure there's no adverse effects. The people giving these vaccines are going to be wearing what I'm wearing along with one of these face shields, a glove, a medical face mask, and that's about it, not a gown or anything else. Preparations have been underway to vaccinate as many as 600 people a day here for months. The hospital has been steadily preparing for this to happen. The hospital's 1,000 frontline workers will have the option to get the Pfizer vaccine as part of this pilot program, which is testing the initial logistics of how to safely inoculate large numbers of people in a single location. Hospitals have experience giving vaccines every year, like the one for the flu, but the CEO of University Hospital, Dr. Elnahal, says the need to keep the Pfizer vaccine super cold and use it all once thawed are just a few of the complications in this vaccine process. We have a responsibility to communicate not only what's going well, uh, but things that may not be working and, uh, you know, changes we have to make in real time. The concept is continuous improvement. We have to move fast. The science moved fast. Everybody moved fast to try to get us here. It's our responsibility to vaccinate as many people as possible fast, but also to learn throughout that process and communicate that learning to everybody. And the university surveyed its workers. About half say they are willing to get the vaccine right now. About a quarter say they want to get more information. Another quarter said they're actually not willing to get the vaccine. And Dr. Elnahal said a key part of making this vaccine uh, seem safe to the public is convincing the staff right here at the hospital that it's safe and effective. Kelly, back over to you. Frank, did you say a quarter of the staff don't want to take the vaccine? Yeah, absolutely, Kelly. Um, you know, the, the hospital is very transparent with this. They took a survey of their employees. About a quarter of them said they're just not comfortable, at least just not yet. And so while the hospital has about 1,000 frontline workers, they expected to take about a week to vaccinate as many as all of them. Uh, I spoke to Dr. Elnahal. He said if they can get 70 percent or more, that would be good because healthcare workers like the general public, many of them have questions.
Sure. No, that's really interesting. Uh, Frank, and it's fascinating to get a look at what's actually going to happen there behind you. Our Frank Holland, we really appreciate it. Let's get out to California now. That's where hospitalizations and cases keep surging, with cases up 70% now on a seven-day average. Kate Rogers is in San Francisco with the latest on their plans to administer the vaccine. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Well, a small light at the end of the tunnel here is the first round of COVID-19 vaccines are projected to arrive in the state within days. And you said it, COVID cases are really surging here. ICU capacity continues to shrink. The state says it's expecting 327,000 doses of Pfizer's vaccine on the way with a second shipment to follow. Uh, in addition to that, Governor Gavin Newsom says 672,000 doses of Moderna's vaccine are also expected. By month's end, more than 2 million doses are projected to be delivered in the state. So who's going to get this vaccine first? In phase one, the state recommends vaccinations for high-risk health care workers like those in direct health care or long-term care settings, as well as nursing home residents and assisted living facilities for older or medically vulnerable residents. It has been a long and dark tunnel for those who are working in hospitals, uh, our nurses, doctors, therapists who have been at this for almost a year. They are exhausted. Uh, they are stressed. They are burnt out. The number of cases is rising at an astronomical rate. This vaccine is the first step to really begin to help us mitigate and slow that pace down. Here at UCSF, the hospital saying it expects just under 1,000 doses of Pfizer's vaccine initially. Obviously, Kelly couldn't come at a better time. The state's economy has been truly hard hit by the virus because it relies so heavily on tourism, which has been all but decimated here. We're also under new lockdowns and restrictions. About 85% of the state uh, is under some type of restrictions right now. So a long way to go, of course, but one step in the right direction here. And Kate, again, they seem, like you said, to be starting with the healthcare care workers uh, from what Frank suggested. Maybe it takes about a week uh, or so, to, you know, at, at some hospital. I mean, are you hearing anything about how fast that rollout might be in a state like California? I mean, it is going to be a huge task. There are two million healthcare workers in just that first tier alone. Remember, it's a two dose vaccine, obviously. So if you get two million doses, it looks like about half of them might be able to get it. The CHA CEO that we spoke to there uh, earlier in the hit basically said COVID is a story of shortages. There's not been enough PPE. There's not enough hospital beds. The vaccine initially will be much the same. Hospitals are going to have to decide you know, who's highest risk and who will get that first as it rolls out. Yeah. Kate, we appreciate it today. Kate Rogers out in California and San Francisco uh, with the latest there. Coming up, it's one step forward and one step back. Stimulus talk stalling again as the clock ticked towards a, a government shutdown. The latest from D.C. is next. Plus, unparalleled Disney wins, mind-blowing. These are some of the terms being used on Wall Street after Disney's Investor Day. And look at the shares. They're up more than 14% right now. Again, that's Helping the Dow almost uh, stay positive. Dow's down about 48 points right now. We will have all the details on this big mover just ahead. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. 
specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. The stimulus stalemate continues while the clock ticks toward a government shutdown. For the latest on both fronts, let's bring in Elon Moy. Elon? Well, Kelly, the prospect of a government shutdown has diminished but not disappeared. Midnight is the deadline for lawmakers to act to keep the lights on for just one more week. And this morning, GOP Senator Rand Paul backed off of his threat to hold up this process over his objections about defense spending and troop levels. But there are still two potential roadblocks, and one of them is the unlikely duo of Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and Republican Josh Hawley. They are demanding a vote on their new bill to provide another round of stimulus checks, $1,200 for adults and $500 for kids. There's also a group of Republican senators who are asking for a vote on a bill that would end government shutdowns altogether by creating an automatic funding measure that would kick in if Congress can't reach an agreement. So if you're following that, it means that the bill to end government shutdowns could wind up causing one, at least for today. And Kelly, even if we do avert disaster at midnight, this all just kicks the can down the road until next Friday. Back over to you. Nothing sums it up like saying the bill to end shutdowns <laughs> could lead to a shutdown. But I guess that's the only leverage you ever have to get some of this stuff through. Elon, are you hearing? I mean, there, there can't be. We would know by now if there was wide support for that measure. Um, and how much, you know, how long can Rand Paul hold out? In other words, is this just kind of you know, tune in this afternoon, this evening, and let's see? Or is this, are, are these kind of real uh, holdups here? Well, the reality here is that the government will get funded at some point. The problem is just the clock. You know, if they do not meet the midnight deadline, the way the Senate procedural rules work, it would allow potentially some senators to drag this process out as long as through the weekend. But eventually it would come to an end and the government would reopen because there's not really debate about whether or not the government should be funded. It's just about what should be attached to that overall spending measure. And again, we're going to be going through this process again, and all of this is going to be wrapped into the negotiations around both another coronavirus relief package and a comprehensive spending bill that has to get done now by, well, today, but then by December 18th as well. Yep, exactly. All right, Elon, we appreciate it. Elon Moy in Washington. In fact, my next guest says by Monday we'll need an agreement in principle or else Congress could run out of time to pass the stimulus bill. Let's bring in Stephanie Miller. She's managing director at Fiscal Note Markets. And also James Pethokoukas. He is economic policy analyst at the American Enterprise Institute and a CNBC contributor. Stephanie, I was referencing your thoughts here. So you're looking for some movement this weekend or, or Monday at the latest. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, and I've really been looking for some semblance of an agreement by today, and I'll give them a couple more days of grace. But uh, just the amount of time it would take to, you know, paper the deal in, in the legislative process and then move it through both chambers of Congress, if they want it to continue to be attached to this federal spending bill that, as Elon was saying, that expires or will soon expire next Friday, they I really would need to see some announcement that they've reached a deal by end of the day Monday at the absolute latest. Jimmy, some of the main sticking points appear to be over uh, jobless benefits. You know, Speaker Pelosi said she didn't like the White House proposal that got rid of the extra $300 bonus, but it does have 
the direct payments, you know, the stimulus check that Hawley and, and Sanders are pushing for. So um, how likely do you think it is that a second stimulus check is coming? And could that be a way to resolve both disputes on both of these bills? I mean, to be honest, I think the second stimulus check has been a real complicating sort of factor in all this. I mean, there seemed to be some general agreement about aid to small business, uh, at least in some quarters, aid to state local governments, and of course, uh, extending unemployment. That, now you've added sort of this alternative that would replace the unemployment uh, extension in some cases. So we're sort of adding new wrinkles rather than agreeing. So we've sort of agreed on a, a, on a big number. Do you think that would be like 99% of it agreeing on the 900 billion, which is you know a tremendous amount of money, and then coming to agreement on some of these other portions? Uh, that, I mean, the fact that we have not figured that out yet, the fact that we're adding sort of new wrinkles, and the fact that we've known about this for months, that we've needed more stimulus to sort of create a bridge to when we have these vaccines, and the fact that it's not done, that reality in and of itself, I think, is the greatest reason for pessimism. So, Stephanie, a couple of things. I mean, Leader McConnell last week said, we are not leaving Washington without getting this done. He was referring to the skinny bill that he unveiled that didn't have state and local, that didn't have the liability shield. So is it possible that we go through all of this and it is the skinny bill that gets done? Or do you think the only way this moves forward is if it's on in the kind of 900 billion compromise range, either the bipartisan plan that we saw last week or the kind of newer White House version? Yeah, and Pelosi has made similar comments with a similar sentiment. So both the leaders in both chambers have basically said no one's leaving till we solve this. In Washington, typically where there's a will, there's a way. I think the biggest complicating factor right now is that the, the Georgia Senate runoff elections are still looming large. So both sides are not sure if they're going to be in the Senate majority next year. And if they are, that gives them more leverage. So neither is really willing to back off. But all that being said, McConnell has sort of characterized uh, through uh, intuition as much as explicitly that anything smaller than one trillion dollars he would view as narrow. So I think it can be I think it needs to be bigger for Democrats to support it. So I think that 900 billion number absolutely is what I'm expecting. Interesting. Jimmy, we keep talking about December 18th. They're going home. But are they? I mean, the real deadline is December 31st. Ostensibly, you could even work past that and make some of these things retroactive. Um, We've had stories of Congress sleeping in Washington during shutdown negotiations and that sort of thing in recent years. Why is the December 18th really the deadline, or is it? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that is the deadline. Remember, you have stories about people sleeping in Washington about the shutdown, which is not nearly as important as getting this COVID relief measure through. Uh, I'm sure you've had plenty of guests on here, uh, you know, Wall Street strategists who have just assumed that there's a pretty big chunk of money coming. Maybe it's $700 billion, maybe it's $900 billion. I think every day this sort of doesn't happen, I think people begin to question whether that is sort of a locked-in assumption. And perhaps in the end, the action-forcing mechanism would be uh, the market. The market's suddenly realizing that even though it seems wildly obvious that we need this money, that the odds are growing that it doesn't happen, maybe, maybe eventually that's what will force uh, action on Capitol Hill. Yeah, if we, if that even happened, I mean, it's it's in, given the way sentiment is going into year end on this market. But you're right that we're still seeing stocks kind of track the fate of this bill. Jimmy Petakukis, Stephanie Miller, thank you both for your thoughts today. We'll see what the weekend brings. And coming up here on the exchange. 
Cash is still king. Exclusive data on the rise of all cash home buyers, where they're headed, and the role they're playing in this increasingly tight market. Plus, why one analyst on Wall Street says Tesla can't dominate autos, and this rally is about to go into neutral. Tesla shares down 3.5% today. And don't forget, you can watch us live on the go on the CNBC app anytime. The exchange is back in a couple. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. The housing market is red hot as low supply and strong demand have made buying super competitive this year and sellers pickier than ever. That's giving all cash buyers a leg up. And Diana Olick has more for us on that story. Diana. Yeah, Kelly, we have some exclusive numbers from Realtor.com and Redfin that give great insight into the market right now. All cash sales now make up about 36% of sales, and that's up very slightly overall from last year, but there has been a much bigger shift by location and price point. All cash sales are way up in the Northeast and West, but steady elsewhere. Now, looking locally, the highest share of all cash sales are in Nassau County, New York. That's just out the, outside of the city on Long Island. Nearly half of all sales there, all cash. Then the next six top markets, all in Florida. Atlanta and Tucson also saw a lot of cash buyers. Now on the flip side, a very low share of cash right here in Washington, D.C., in Denver, San Diego, and Oakland, California. By price point, all cash sales jumped six percentage points at the lowest price tier and three at the next rung up. The middle price tiers, though, they stayed about the same and actually dropped in the $750,000 to $1 million range. Then at the very top of the market, another jump in cash in the million-plus range. Investors have always favored cash but are doing so even more this year. They're usually on the low end of the market. That high-end buyer using all cash, that may be more about competition for those big homes with all the outdoor work and school from home spaces. And, of course, the jump in the equities market. Kelly? Yeah, I mean, I, I can maybe see how Wall Street with the big annual bonuses or Silicon Valley with maybe some of these new IPOs, how those could be cash buyers on the high end. But I'm curious how this is impacting the overall market. Does it trickle down in a helpful or a harmful way to kind of everybody else, the middle or the lower end uh, on the price range? 
Well, it certainly makes it very competitive on the low end. And look, first-time home buyers are already up against investors who love to live on the low end of the market, so it makes it tougher for them to get in. We are, however, seeing some buyers, you know, borrowing money from family and friends, closing the deal, and then taking out a mortgage afterward. But it's just so surprising, given how low mortgage rates are right now, that we're still seeing such a high share of cash deals. That's something to ponder, you know, raising all that cash from family and friends uh, and then turning around to repay it. It's like a syndicate. Uh, Diana, fascinating. Thank you for bringing that to us. Diana Olick on the dynamics playing out in the housing market right now. Coming up, it's an Internet stock that has gained nearly 12 percent this week. We'll reveal Friday's under the radar find next. And as the pandemic shuts down stages, we'll speak with the CEO of a streaming service, bringing everything from a music festival in India to off-Broadway shows now into people's homes. We're back in a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange. Don't look now, but the Dow's almost positive. It's down only 12 points right now. Big outperformer of the day, helped by Disney. Uh, fractional uh, decline there means that if we get a further move, even in Disney or, or a couple of others, we're going to be positive here before you know it. The S&P still down 18 points or half a percent. The Nasdaq down 7 tenths of 1%. Clearly the laggard in the sector show you that as well. Communication services, uh, staples, uh, and industrials are your leaders today, but some mixed bag uh, utilities underwater, energy financials and technology are the biggest laggards right now. Energy's down nearly 2%. Let's get to our Friday find. It's a stock with a big move that went under the radar this week. And today we're looking at Baidu, the stock moving higher to cap off a strong five-day session. Baidu is up nearly 12% this week. The company boosted its stock buyback program by a billion and a half dollars on Tuesday. And UBS upgraded the stock to a buy and hiked its price target to 190. It's an 18% rally from here. We're around 161. They're talking about growth in the company's core revenue base by adding another 2% today. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Good to see you. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. We are watching the Supreme Court, which may have a response as soon as today to the lawsuit from the state of Texas that seeks to stop electors from Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin for voting for Joe Biden as scheduled on Monday. The extremely unusual suit, strongly supported by President Trump, accuses the states of not following their own rules, making it impossible to detect any fraud. But retiring Republican Senator Lamar Alexander tells NBC's Chuck Todd he's not buying it. That doesn't sound like a very Republican argument to me. I mean, our position, my position, Republicans believe that states are in charge of elections. And Texas is a big state, but I don't know exactly why it has a right to tell four other states how to run their elections. So I'm having a hard time uh, figuring out the basis for that lawsuit. And minutes ago, the Senate voted 84 to 13 for final passage of a defense spending bill that President Trump has promised to veto. The margin, if it holds in the face of an actual veto, would be more than enough to override it. You are up to date, Kelly. That's the news update this hour. See you next hour. Back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very much. Coming up, Disney storms ahead. This ain't your mother's IPO boom. And the street struggles with Tesla's price surge. It's all in rapid fire coming up right after this break. Don't go anywhere.
Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Michael Santoli, Julia Borston, and Robert Frank. Welcome, everybody. First up, we got to start with Disney. Investors loved everything they heard at Investor Day yesterday, from the more than 86 million Disney Plus subscribers to its ever-growing content hoard. The stock, like I mentioned, is now up 14.5% on pace for one of its best days ever. Here are some of the glowing reviews from the street. Needham's Laura Martin declaring that when it comes to Netflix versus Disney Plus, Disney wins. Moffat Nathanson writing the breadth and quality of the content tsunami coming to Disney Plus is, quote, mind-blowing and frightening to any subscale company. Barclays raising its Disney price target to 185, saying the company's growth path is likely to be unparalleled. And Goldman hiking its price target to a street high of $200. Mike, I'm going to start with you. Too much enthusiasm? I wouldn't say too much, uh, well, at least in the long term, probably not too much, uh, because this is a market where we buy our favorites. Uh, people have fans of the companies, of the company's products, and they become fans of the stock. I also think that this rate of acceleration and streaming penetration was not anticipated. I think the price increase is a very important part of what they announced yesterday because the revenue per user was still badly lagging what, what Netflix does. And this puts them on a path of having a little bit firmer pricing. So it's very expensive. I mean, the, stock, the company is now valued largely as a Netflix-like streaming business with the other stuff thrown in, which, of course, is, is largely going to come back. But the company in the last few years has gone from being a victim of the trend in cord cutting uh, towards streaming to being one of the leaders in, in, trans, in making that transformation. Yeah, Julia, it reminds me a little bit of when Facebook went public. The shares cratered to 18 bucks because people said, can they pivot to mobile? And that was, you know, how many, you know, hundreds of billions ago. Here's Disney where people were, and again, people were right to be concerned about Facebook back then. They're right to be concerned the last couple of years going back to that famous, you know, summer of 2015 about Disney's future beyond ESPN. And look where they are now. I mean, they've certainly pulled off this pivot. Absolutely, Kelly. The pivot has been made. I mean, looking at just the scope and the scale of the content going on Disney Plus, 100 new titles, original titles for Disney Plus every year. The fact that they're forecasting to have between 300 and 350 million streaming subscribers between Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus by 2024. Those numbers are massive. Just look at the fact that Netflix now has just about 200 million subscribers, and it launched its streaming service back in 2007. So massive scale here. And I just want to point out one key thing, Kelly, is that they showed that they're going to take um, a, a, a nimble approach to how they distribute content. Some films will be a traditional theatrical release. They'll put them in theaters and nowhere else. Other films, like this film Raya, they have coming out in March, they'll put in theaters and also sell to Disney Plus subscribers for an additional $30. So I also think that analysts like that they're not foregoing the traditional model entirely. Yeah, they're up almost 15% right now. Uh, stay right there, everybody. We've got a news alert out of Washington. Elon Moy, I, we know that must mean something about, what is it, stimulus or government funding, Elon? It's a little bit of both, Kelly. The Senate has just passed that one-week government funding bill that would keep the lights on through December 18th. But two key senators are saying that their fight is not over. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and Republican Josh Hawley said that they are committed to holding up the next funding bill 
unless there is an agreement to vote on their new uh, measure that would provide another round of stimulus checks at $1,200 for adults, $500 for kids. They gave a scathing speech about the economic devastation that this pandemic has wrought in their communities, and they said that lawmakers should not leave Washington until another relief bill is passed. So for now, the government will stay open for one more week. But Kelly, the fight over stimulus just got a lot more complicated. Back over to you. No, we don't have room for complicated. We don't have time for complicated. Uh, this is Congress, though. Elon, thanks very much. Please keep us posted. Elon Moy is in Washington. Let's turn back to our discussion. Before I move on from Disney, I just wanted to get a parting thought, uh, Robert Frank, from you and go back to what Julia said about 350 million subscribers. Does that seem realistic to you? Yeah, when I first saw these numbers, Kelly, I just thought, well, this is pie in the sky. This is almost like an Elon Musk type prediction. And then I thought, well, wait. This is Disney. <laughs> they do not make these predictions lightly. And this was Disney bringing a nuclear warhead to the streaming wars. I mean, the amount of money that's going to take keep up with these, these guys. And you just wonder what happens to the AMCs, the Viacoms. Uh, you know, Hulu's doing okay for now, but, but HBO Max, all these other streaming companies or aspirational streaming companies. You just wonder how many survivors will be left standing, how many will each household subscribe to now that prices are going up? Is it, it's probably more than two per household, but it's probably not more than five. So, so you just wonder how many of these streaming companies are gonna survive in the end giving how much, com how much money it's gonna take to program. Yeah. My guess, like any other industry, it's gonna be four, and we're learning it's gonna be Netflix, you know, Disney Plus and everyone else is jockeying to be in, in third and fourth position. But I agree with you. The, those numbers are enormous. <laughs> but uh, but maybe they are still achievable. Uh, certainly investors do like it. All right, let's move on and talk about, speaking of monster, it's been a monster week for IPOs. From Wall Street to Silicon Valley now, some are actually wondering if this IPO process is broken or flawed or they're just what to make of this week. DoorDash, C3AI, Airbnb, all blew past their IPO prices with the latter two doubling by the time they went public. These big pops have some folks even bringing up the bubble word, Barron's, out with an article warning that the environment is starting to feel like 1999 all over again and warning it may end the same way. Mike, here's my two cents. I want to definitely know what you think about this. The strange thing about the IPOs this week is that we had these big pops, but it was all before the stock actually went public. So even in the late 90s, I mean, you'd see that once they went public, then the things would skyrocket yeah. in a retail. Everyone was kind of like trading and, and driving them to move. Even Beyond Meat last summer, again, it went public more or less double the price, but still rallied another 40, 50, 60 percent from there. Airbnb and, and Dash this week, I mean, those things hit the public market and they basically were parked. Dash is now like 10 bucks below the level that it came public at, right. technically. I think part of this is that you do just have this huge assault of small orders coming from every direction. And now there's an effort before you open a stock is to try and, and, and match as much of it as possible at the opening trade. Now, the New York Stock Exchange always did that. The NASDAQ now kind of does more of that than they used to. So that's just mechanical. But I also think that you have to uh, keep in mind that if the criticism here is that the underwriters, quote, got it wrong or the company supposedly left money on the table, it's a tough argument to make simply because it's not a science. There's no perfect information about how much price insensitive, disorderly, frankly, uninformed order flow is going to come in. The number of people on Twitter, as I was talking about this yesterday, who thought when they put an order in yesterday they would get an Airbnb at 68 
when, which is the issue price, but that's was my stunning. Point. Yes. No, you're totally right. I think people totally misunderstand this, and it doesn't help that we have to reference 68 as if that's yeah. the opening price. But the opening price was really 146. I mean, yeah. it closed beneath that. It did. I mean, you got a step function value, but that's what it's supposed to do, really. Um, you're supposed to essentially say, let's try to find the clearing price with everybody involved. And that's more or less what happened. Now, we don't know if that's going to continue. You, this thing can run in many different directions, uh, but that's not necessarily a, a sign of it being broken. It's just different. Robert, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I love the question of whether this is like 1999 and watching the analysts and everyone do contortions to explain how it's different. First, they said, well, this is different because these companies are profitable. Well, I don't know, DoorDash, are they ever going to be profitable? They're certainly not now. So that gets rid of that argument. And True. then we heard, well, well, these companies. Yeah. And then we heard, well, you know, all these companies are, are disrupting industries and and you know these th we're, we're just not seeing the same level of speculation that we saw back then and and i just think it, it's evident now what is different this time is back in 1999 the 10-year was at about five and a half percent and now we're still under one percent so that it's really about the supply of money looking for growth that's why i do think this time is different could go on longer but i think the speculative nature of this uh, feels very similar Yes, but again, fifty and hundred billion dollar market caps. I mean, you know, these are now monster companies. Yeah, back then, it was the hundreds of it's like one hundred million dollar companies, basically. Right, right, yeah. exactly. And it's a lot easier to kind of chuck one of those to zero or watch it grow like Amazon. In these cases, it just feels like we're going to be parked here for a while. But anyway. What do I know? Uh, let's talk about some of the big changes that are coming to Google, because this is a, a fascinating glimpse of what the future of advertising could look like. Google is adding new user controls regarding, in particular, alcohol and gambling. This is so that people can choose to turn them off. So Google wrote in a blog post, it's to help people avoid sensitive subjects like these. The company says it'll roll out this feature on YouTube in the US first, and then to the larger Google ad world early next year. Julia. I love this. I mean, give me a checklist. Let me, let me, can I turn off insurance ads too? I mean, how, at what point will the advertisers themselves push back and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, you're, you're giving too many people the power to tune us out. Well, look, Kelly, I think that this particular instance of alcohol and gambling, this seems like a no brainer and a win win for Google and for advertisers. I mean, there are so many reasons why either for religious reasons or for health reasons, let's say someone is a gambling addict or an alcoholic, if they want to opt out of these ads, they should absolutely be able to. And that actually ends up being a win for the brands because they don't want to waste money on ads that people absolutely don't want to see and might actually make them uncomfortable. So if this can really work out and can be a win-win, we could really see this expand to other categories. Think about the kinds of brands that families may want to avoid. Let's say you're a vegetarian and you want to stop getting ads yep. for hamburgers. So I think that ultimately, if they can make sure that what you see is the type of ad you want to see, then that advertising is going to be more valuable, more expensive, and Google will make more uh, money from it. We're we're out of time, but Robert, like I said, there's a lot I'd like to turn off. I, but listen, if there wasn't some attractiveness in, there's a reason why we see, you know, liquor shops in communities where people are dependent on alcohol. I mean, at what point are the advertisers going to push back and, and think that they're losing uh, sway? 
What's great about this is it doesn't seem like it's going to cost much on the marketer side. It's going to be a very minimal decrease and, it, and, and everyone's doing the right thing. Kelly, to your point, I just wonder for me, if I ticked off every box I don't want to receive, I wonder what would be left. Right. And aside from like <laughs> athletic wear, I would get no advertising. <laughs> Yeah, you're going to get RH's $5,000, what was it, Velvet Chase Lounge yeah, or something? I know you have it in your house. Exactly. I know. Uh, we got to go. Yeah, Thank right you, everybody. There. Robert Frank, Julia Borston, Michael Santoli for Rapid Fire. Still ahead, COVID is putting a stop to concerts and shows around the world, but a streaming service that launched during the pandemic is bringing live events into living rooms. We talk to the founder next. Welcome back. The live event industry has been one of the hardest hit from the pandemic, with one study estimating that 90% of venue owners, promoters, and bookers could close permanently without targeted government relief. But now a new startup is helping performers and venues get back to work by live streaming concerts across the country. For more, I'm joined by Calvin Louie. He's the co-founder and CEO of In.Live. Calvin, it's great to have you. You had this idea pre-pandemic, but what's demand in business like right now? Oh, it's been uh, it's been fantastic, you know, in many respects, because uh, as you you mentioned very clearly, uh, this, the industry is suffering uh, and fans are suffering, too. They're looking for ways to sort of connect and find a little joy uh, and happiness from the things that they love, like music and entertainment. Uh, and we've been able to help people get back to work. Fans experience live, intimate shows and, and connections that they weren't able to do uh, during the pandemic in other ways. How much does it cost and do I need any special equipment? Am I streaming this or am I watching it on, you know, TV? And is there any opportunity for kind of two-way engagement? Absolutely. Um, so you can do it with any device. Uh, we've designed our platform so that uh, you can actually access it as a creator from any type of equipment, all the way ranging from a simple iPhone uh, with our iPhone app, all the way up to professional studio or venue equipment. Uh, and as a fan, uh, you can watch it on any browser. Uh, and you can cast it onto a smart TV if you want a big screen experience. Uh, you can have a dual experience with a TV and uh, a laptop if you'd like to do it. Uh, so the, the, the really cool thing, it, what, it, it, what digital allows you to do is bring really like circles of intimacy into the experience based on uh, the way the event producer wants to create it. Uh, you can actually do things you can't do yeah. in real life. Uh, for example, you can do one-on-one -on -one meet and greets virtually uh, right after the show. Uh, the artist can actually quote unquote jump onto uh, into your living room and do a selfie and a sing-along and serenade just you uh, in the moment if you have a premium package, things like that. Uh, so what we're doing is really accentuating uh, what the power of digital interactivity, the intimacy that it can bring and the interactivity it can bring, and that brings uh, a lot of smiles and joy to people around the world. That would be my question, though. What happens post-pandemic when everyone's desperate to go live and doesn't want to watch anything in their living room? But I guess you answered that already. So the, the, the great thing is, you know, people are really learning how to leverage the power of this new medium. Uh, the last nine months, while it's been uh, challenging for many people, it's also forced people to think about ways that they can innovate and create experiences that are different. Uh, we're actually very excited as an industry about what the future holds when we come back into a world where you can uh, do things in real, in, in real life, if you will. Uh, and a lot of people are talking about doing yeah. hybrid events. Uh, where you can do some people are in the venue live, uh, mm -hmm. in the arena live, but a whole host of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people can have a different yet compelling experience that's digital yeah. if they can't make it to the venue. 
uh, if they're in in, in Tulsa. I know someone wanna... like me might be more interested in watching uh, from my living room than having to go anywhere for the next couple of years. Calvin, thanks That's for right. joining us. Uh, we're out of time. Sorry to cut you off there. Uh, Calvin Louis. Uh, explaining the future of live. That does it for the exchange of next on Power Lunch. Pfizer's COVID vaccine is poised to get emergency use authorization from the FDA. We'll doc, uh, talk to Dr. Paul Offit, who's on the advisory committee and who approved the vaccine, about some of his remaining questions. I'll see you in a moment. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.